I want to welcome everyone here to Gospel of Grace Fellowship. Now, for those of you that may be new here, I don't know if we have any new people. We do teach verse by verse through the Bible. And today I happen to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. By the way, Bob DeWay has been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. He's currently in 1 Corinthians 3. But today, as we proceed here, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to a very important section in which Jesus is going to explain how he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And I think this section of Scripture should really force every Christian to wrestle with what covenant that they are under and how the new covenant is certainly related to, yet different, than the old covenant. And I say that because as a pastor over some years, I've seen really a lot of trouble come into people's lives when they don't know what covenant they are under. But today, dear ones, you and I are going to learn a couple of things. We're going to learn that God has sent Christ to be the fulfillment of the law, and that true righteousness is only found in him. Why? Because he is the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. Now, I want to begin by mentioning that I think Matthew wrote his gospel probably about 20 years after the ascension of Christ. And in that time period, there were many people in Israel who were probably entrenched in Judaism that would make allegations against Christians, saying that you and I, as Christians, were antinomian. Now, what's an antinomian? It means against the law. And so here, in this section of Scripture, Matthew is going to use Jesus' words to refute two common errors that were launched against Christianity by those entrenched in Judaism. That is, the first error that Matthew addresses is one in which people think that Jesus and his followers are lawless. Dear ones, we're going to learn today that believers in Jesus Christ, we are not lawless, merely because we don't follow the Mosaic law, but rather the scriptures teach that you and I as believers in Christ are uniquely those who fulfill the law, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because we belong to Jesus Christ who fulfills the Old Testament expectations on our behalf. That's what we're going to be learning today. Now, the second error Matthew addresses in this section is one in which people fail to see how the Old Testament looked forward to Messiah's person and work. I want you to think of it this way. If Jesus is precisely the fulfillment of the expectations of the Old Testament, then when he comes, certainly you and I and our relationship with God is going to be different than it was under the Old Covenant. Brothers and sisters, you and I are going to learn today, once again, that Jesus' coming fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. And so that's why, as we pick it up here in verse 17, Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he did not come to abrogate the Old Testament, but to be the fulfillment of it. Notice Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, one of the big debates in this text of Scripture is what does Jesus mean when he says that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them? Well, thankfully, Matthew has given us many clues by using language that he uses elsewhere in Matthew so we know what he means. So, for example, let's start with that highlighted red phrase. In fact, I'm going to pull up my pointer here, get it ready. Notice the highlighted red phrase, the law or the prophets. What is that? Well, I believe that that is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. So remember, the Jew who had the Old Testament, they had a tripart nature of those scriptures. They would abbreviate that Tanakh. If we were to transliterate that into English, it would be TNK. The Torah, first five books of Moses. Then it would be the Navaim, the prophets, and the Kathavim, the writings. So the law, the prophets, and the writings were the entirety of their Old Testament scriptures. But oftentimes, they would shorthand that as simply being the law or the prophets. Okay. Now, one thing I want to point out here, it's a literary device. We see the beginning of something called an inclusio. I don't want to get too nerdy with you, but an inclusio is a literary device in which in scripture you have a bracketed phrase or word that happens at the beginning of a section and at the end. So notice the phrase again, the law or the prophets. You're going to see that same phrase crop up in Matthew 7, 12, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus will give us what we call the golden rule 
do unto others as you want done unto you. For this, he says, is the law and the prophets. And so we can see then the Sermon on the Mount is about Christ wrestling with the Old Testament and the Old Testament scriptures and law. Now, I want you to take note here that Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures. The term abolish there, kataluo, is used elsewhere for the destruction of the temple. It's used in Matthew 24, 2, uh, Matthew 26, 61, Matthew 27, 40. So what Jesus is saying here by using kataluo is he did not come to dismantle, destroy, abolish, however you want to render it, the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures. But instead, what did he come to do? Well, he came, notice in the box, he came to fulfill. Now, the, t- the term fulfill there, pleiro'o, is a verb that's used elsewhere, and I'll show you on the next slide, in which Matthew shows Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations. And the reason this is important, I think, here is because I want you to note that Jesus said fulfill and not obey. You see, when I was a brand new Christian, I used to think Matthew 5.17 was all about Jesus obeying the law of Moses, the, the specific commandments, so that I didn't have to or because I couldn't do so. Now, certainly that concept is taught in Scripture, but that is not the point that Jesus is making here. Jesus is making the point that he fulfills all of the expectations of the Old Testament Scriptures. And this is very important because we have to realize, I remember as a brand-new Christian, again, I thought that, yes, the Old Testament prophets, when they were under the inspiration of the Spirit and they wrote prophecy, that they were somehow writing better than they knew. That certainly it was predictive, and certainly it was inspired by the Spirit, but that oftentimes they really didn't know what they were saying. Well, later, as I progressed in my understanding, I realized that Old Testament messianic prophecy is far greater than that. Old Testament prophecy certainly is predictive, but it was also the prophets of old, whether it be Moses or anyone else, teaching messianic doctrine to their congregation in their day, who the Messiah would be, what he would do, where he would come from. And so I'm going to show you evidence outside, even of Matthew 5.17, where Jesus asserts the very same idea that he is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament spoke. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. Again, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. Now, the reason I want you to turn there, remember, this is where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus in his resurrected body. And ironically, his disciples don't recognize him, and they're moaning about the fact that they lost their Messiah. And so Jesus, listen to how he encourages them. Matthew 24, verses 25 through 27, verse 25, it says, And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now, notice in verse 26, he asks this question. He says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Let's stop there for a moment. What is the implied answer to that rhetorical question? Of course it was. Of course it was necessary that he would suffer. Isn't that what Isaiah 53 predicted? That the Messiah would suffer on behalf of his people for the forgiveness of sins. So, of course, it was necessary. Now, notice what he says, the summary in verse 27. It says, then the beginning, then beginning with Moses, that's the law, and with all the prophets, so we have the Old Testament, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Notice again in Matthew, excuse me, Luke 24, 27, you see all the scriptures is comprised of the law and the prophets. But what Jesus is saying here is that, yes, they were all about him. Now, don't make the mistake in thinking that every single passage is about Jesus, but the idea is that the totality of the entire Old Testament was pointing forward to the Messiah. And so Jesus is simply saying to us today in verse 17 of Matthew 5 that he is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament scriptures. Let me give you a paraphrase that might be helpful So it's not so long. This is my paraphrase of the entire verse. There was another scholar who had one, but I made it even simpler. 
I'm saying it this way. Jesus is not getting rid of the Old Testament. He's what the Old Testament is about. Again, let me say that again. Jesus is not getting rid of the Old Testament. He's what the Old Testament was all about. Now, one thing I want to point out is proving that Jesus fulfilling is fulfilling the expectations of Old Testament prophecy. Take note of that term fulfill. Again, play roo. Let me show you how Matthew uses that earlier in our book of Matthew. He uses it six earlier times. Matthew 1, 22 through 23. Matthew says there, Jesus play roo, same term, that he fulfills Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin birth prophecy. So that's a fulfillment of messianic expectation. Matthew 2.15, Jesus fulfills Hosea 11.1. 1, same term, play roo. Hosea 11.1, 1, remember that's out of Egypt, I called my son. We see the parallel between Jesus and Israel. Matthew 2.17, Jesus fulfills, play roo once again, Jeremiah 3.15, in the murder of those children in Bethlehem by Herod. Uh, Jesus fulfills in Matthew 2.23, he fulfills Isaiah 11.1. 1. Remember Jesus, the branch, Netzer, grows up in Branchfield, Nazareth. That's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Again, the term fulfill is the same term that's used in Matthew 5.17. Matthew 3.15, Jesus fulfills all righteousness. There's a summary of the prophets. Didn't the prophets suggest that when the Messiah came, he would be the righteous arm of Yahweh, and therefore he had to do all that was necessary, including being baptized for righteousness. So that's a summary statement. And then finally, we came to Matthew 4.14, where Jesus fulfills Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. That those who sat in Galilee, remember, sat in darkness, but they would see the great messianic light. So what's the point? Thus far, fulfill always means fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies and expectations. That's certainly how Jesus is using it in Matthew 5.17. Now, one other passage I want to allude to, I think it's important, and we'll come to this in our studies, Matthew 11.13. Here Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist. Notice what he says. He says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Now, dear ones, notice here in Matthew 5.17 that we just looked at, Jesus talked about the law and the prophets. Here he just has it reversed, the prophets and the law, but he's certainly talking about the Old Testament. So the Old Testament prophesied until John the Baptist. Now, one thing I want to point out is you might ask yourself, well, wait, how does the law of Moses, how does that prophesy? Remember, the law can be referred to as covenant keeping, law as individual commandments, but it also refers to the first five books of Moses. And that's where we see the beginning of messianic prophecy. Isn't the very first prophecy found in Genesis 3.15? where it promises that one day the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. In some sense, the rest of the Bible is details. It's details. You're going to see from there in Genesis, the Messiah comes from Abraham. He's going to come from Isaac. He's going to come from Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. Israel has 12 sons from which come the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, when you get to Genesis 49.10, of all the tribes of Israel, you find that the Messiah is going to come from Judah. Fast forward, still in the first five books of Moses, goes to Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Balaam, this pagan prophet, predicts, he says, well, in the future, God is going to raise up a scepter from Israel. That's the Messiah. Think about, fast forward to the last book of the law, the book of Deuteronomy. Moses the mediator of the Old Covenant makes the prediction in Deuteronomy 18.15 that one day God would raise up a prophet like him and that if the people would not listen to him, it was going to be required of them. And certainly, after Moses' day, there were many prophets, but they ultimately culminate in the prophet par excellence, Jesus. Why? Because just as Moses was the mediator of an Old Covenant, Jesus is the prophet who's the mediator of the new covenant. He is therefore the eternal lawgiver. And that's the exact point now that we turn to as we come to Matthew 5, 18 through 19. We start to see as Jesus begins to build his credentials as this lawgiver. Matthew 5, 18 through 19, Jesus says, 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And dear ones, the first thing I want to point out in this text is notice this phrase Jesus says, truly I say to you. The term truly there is amen. And that phrase, truly I say to you, this is the first out of 30 instances that we will see Jesus use that terminology. Now the term truly or amen, that's where we get our term for amen. Amen is rooted in the Hebrew concept of certainty, certain certain reliability of God's word and his promises. So much so that in Isaiah 65, 16, God himself is called the great amen. Why? Because God who cannot lie, his promises and his scriptures are valid, they're sure, certain, and they're binding. And this is why Jesus is called the great amen in Revelation 3.14. You know why? Because he's God. And as such, his word is certain, it's true, it's binding. Now, let's relate that then to in Jesus' day and even prior, there were many students who would have been following various rabbis, various teachers. And as these rabbis and teachers would teach, their students after them would say, Amen. Truly, this is a certain word from God. It's valid and it's binding. What's fascinating is Jesus begins his teaching with it. He doesn't wait for some man to say, hey, amen. No, he says it in the beginning. Why? Because he teaches, as Matthew will show us in Matthew 7.29, with great authority and not as the scribes do. He doesn't need a man to attest to the validity of what he's saying. This is the living God in the flesh. And he says, this is true. And so listen to his solemn pronouncement. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, let me just first of all handle this issue with the smallest letter in stroke. The smallest letter in Hebrew is the yod. The smallest stroke is called a tittle. It just finishes some of the Hebrew words or letters and distinguishes them from others. So the point that he's making is not one part of the law will pass. Now, for us to properly interpret this whole section, I believe that we have to understand rightly these until statements. By the way, the term until, heos, is the same here, heos. And what I want to do is lay out for you how we should understand these two until statements. If we don't, we're going to be way out in left field. Okay, so let's begin with the first one. I think that these are roughly synonymous. The first one is until heaven and earth pass away, the law will not pass away. Okay, now I think we should take this very literally and let's ask ourselves the question, when does heaven and earth in God's redemptive calendar, when does it pass away? Well, if you think about it, it doesn't pass away until after the thousand-year reign of Christ in the millennial kingdom. Then the old heavens and the old earth will be destroyed and we're going to be given a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Well, isn't it true at that time people's eternal destiny will be fixed. All unbelievers will be assigned to the lake of fire forevermore, and all believers will be reigning with their God in their resurrected state and the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And so at that time, you could see perhaps why the law would pass away. Now, the reason I think that that's probably the best understanding is because I think it's synonymous with this one. Notice he says, until all is accomplished. In other words, the law isn't going to pass away until all is accomplished. The term accomplished there in Greek is ginomai. It literally can be rendered to be brought about. And I think it's related to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment, the one who brings about all of the promises of God. But let me ask you this. In the first coming of Christ, did Jesus exhaust all that God is going to accomplish in his redemptive plan? No, because there's going to be a second coming. There's going to be a great resurrection of both those who belong to Christ and those who do not. There's going to be a millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years. 
There's going to be the battle of Gog and Magog, and then the eternal states, the new heavens, the new earth, new Jerusalem. But here's the point. In Jesus' first coming, you have a huge chunk of that which is going to be accomplished being inaugurated. That's the point. Why? Because Jesus has just told us that the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in him. Now, the reason I say that is when we get to verse 19, notice he says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, they're going to be the least in the kingdom. And whoever's willing to teach these and to do them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. There's two terms, one term and one phrase that I think we have to understand. First of all, the term annuls. When Jesus uses the term annuls, he's using a term luo that was related to kataluo, abolish, in Matthew 5.17. And so certainly he's talking about the same idea. Anyone who wants to abolish or dismantle one of these commandments is going to be the least in the kingdom. But here's the question. Let me ask you this. Put your theological cap on, if you will. Does not the New Testament teach us that the Mosaic law has been set aside. In fact, in Hebrews 8.13, we'll look at this later, the old covenant is called obsolete. So how is it then that Jesus says no one ought to annul it or make it obsolete, and if they do, they're the least in the kingdom? Well, I think it in, what's at stake here is how we understand this phrase, the least of these commandments. Now, I'm going to give you three options, and I'll tell you which one I think it is. The first option is the least of these commandments is simply Jesus' commands. Now, that has a lot going for it because Jesus, right after this, is going to start giving his commands. The problem with it grammatically is, notice in verse 19, you have an inferential conjunction, un in the Greek, then. Or if you have the ESV, if you have an ESV version, it'll say, therefore. What that shows us is verse 19 is connected to verse 18 with the law there. It's not looking forward, it's looking back. So I think that that wrecks, this this is only about Jesus' law that's coming in the future. The second view is to say, well, these commandments, the least of these commandments, is simply a reference to the Old Testament as it is. But there's a third option, and that is certainly the least of these commandments involves the Old Testament, but what did we learn in verse 17? That the entirety of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. So the third view would say, yes, it's a reference to the Old Testament, but as fulfilled in Christ and interpreted by him as the new lawgiver. And brothers and sisters, that's what's so exciting. Remember, we've seen that Jesus was the goal in the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, meaning if you want righteousness with God, you have to belong to this Messiah by faith. And what's more, He is, therefore, the eternal lawgiver. And sure enough, right when we get to Matthew 5.21, all the way to verse 47, Jesus will begin saying, You have heard it said, but I say to you. Let me give you an example. He says, You have heard it said that anyone who murders will be guilty of the judgment. But I say to you, even if you say, Racha, you fool, to your brother, you're guilty of the judgment. You know what? That sounds more difficult, doesn't it? Jesus will say, you have heard it said, any man who lies with a woman who's not his wife has committed adultery. But I say it to you, even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And so what we start seeing is there's all of a sudden a new sheriff in town. And the Lord Jesus, he is going to be the new lawgiver. And after all, shouldn't we expect that, yes, this new lawgiver is going to change things, And yes, he's going to show us just how depraved we truly are because, you see, what we need ultimately is that the law is not simply in written code, but that it would be written on our hearts so that we would be enabled to do that which is pleasing to God by the Spirit. That's exactly what it promises in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And this is why in Jeremiah 31, 32, it said that the new covenant would be a different covenant. Not the same as the old one. Now, turn your Bibles ahead to Matthew 28.20. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 28.20. I want you to see who the ultimate lawgiver is. Is it Moses or is it Jesus? Is the covenant that we're under the new 
or is it the old? Turn your Bibles to Matthew 28, 20. Remember, this is the Great Commission. And in this Great Commission, Jesus says that he had been given all authority in heaven and earth. He says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And notice he comes to verse 20. Notice what he says. Matthew 28, 20, he says, teaching them to observe all that Moses commanded. No, he doesn't say that, does he? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, if you want to be righteous with God, the only way you can do so is by being connected to this Messiah by faith, who is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament expectations. And as such, this Jesus is the eternal lawgiver who will define for us what is right and what is wrong. Now, as we come to verse 20, we're given an explanatory four where Jesus starts to explain that righteous living is necessary. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice for Jesus the condition of entrance into the kingdom is that our righteousness would exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now remember, in the book of Matthew, and you see this all over the Gospels, the Gospels take a very dim view of the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Well, they have two major problems. The first problem is they reject the Messiah that the Scriptures pointed to. They claim to love the Scriptures, the Old Testament, but they don't believe the Messiah that the Old Testament pointed to. That's the biggest problem. But the second problem that they have is that they elevate their own tradition to supersede that of the Word of God, the Scriptures. In fact, I want you to see evidence of that. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 15, verses 1 through 3. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 15, 1 through 3. I want you to see how the scribes and the Pharisees elevated their own tradition to that of Scripture and to really supersede Scripture. And the reason I want you to turn to this is I want you to ask yourself the question, are we to be those who simply emulate the scribes and Pharisees? And you'll see that that's not the case. Matthew 15, 1 through 3. Notice it says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Stop there. Notice he doesn't, they don't say, Hey, why do your disciples break the scriptures? It's not the scriptures, it's their own tradition. Nowhere in the Old Testament did it command that the normal person had to wash their hands prior to eating. It's made up. It's made up whole cloth in their tradition. And it says, for they did not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now notice Jesus' response, verse 3. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Dear ones, those who go beyond the scriptures aren't more scrupulous. They're heretics leading people to hell. So when you and I are being asked then, to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, is Jesus Christ asking us, his followers, simply to beat the scribes and the Pharisees at their own game? As if you and I can somehow pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just become more holy, and therefore we'll be righteous and enter the kingdom? No. What Jesus is doing is throwing down the gauntlet and showing that if the scribes and the Pharisees couldn't do the law, you and I won't either. And the big idea then is that if you and I aren't connected to this Jesus by faith, our righteousness will never exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. As Jesus will start saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, yes, that shows us what real morality is, number one. But number two, it says to us, I can't do that. I can't do that, Jesus. I need you who can and who did. That's what it's telling us. If you're not connected to Jesus Christ by faith, you will never have a righteousness sufficient to enter the kingdom of God. That's where this is all driving. Now, with that, let me come to a couple of application points that I think are very important for us to glean 
from this text. The first one is this. Christians must understand that we belong to Christ and must submit to his new covenant. You and I must be convinced in our minds that we are new covenant Christians and we submit to Jesus Christ and his apostles as the lawgiver. Number two, we must know that the only way our righteousness can surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees is by belonging to Christ by faith. Dear ones, do not try to beat the scribes and the Pharisees at their own game. The problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is that they didn't see their need for a savior. But you and I have to. All right, now, what I want to do in this first slide, I want to begin with number one. I want to begin to show you how in the gospel of Matthew itself, we start to see that Jesus, yes, he's the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. In fact, he supersedes it as the new lawgiver of the new covenant. And I want to show you evidence of it in a very profound saying that I want everyone to know. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 12, 1 through 8. Matthew chapter 12, 1 through 8. I'm sorry, I'm giving you a, a scriptural workout here. Your, your hands are going to be tired. If you're licking your fingers to turn, you're going to be dry. You're going to have to get water. Matthew 12, 1 through 8. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, as you turn to Matthew 12, 1 through 8, remember, this is Jesus going through the grain fields with his disciples, and it's on the Sabbath. And yes, the disciples end up eating, breaking technically the Sabbath law by gathering. Matthew 12, 1 through 8. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Stop there. You know, they've got a point. It's not legal to gather at least as they understood it, on the Sabbath. But notice they continue. This is what Jesus says back, verse 3. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone? Stop there. Who comes from David but the Messiah? What if David starves? Are the messianic promises done? Didn't it, wasn't it promised in 2 Samuel 7, Messiah comes from David? Oh, yes. If David dies, the messianic promises die, and you and I are left in our sins. So isn't David's survival a little bit more important? I think so. Now, he builds off of this. Notice in verse 5, he says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, listen to this one, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, now he, he cites Hosea 6.6. 6, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. He says, you would not have condemned the innocent. Verse 8. He says, for the Son of Man, that's a messianic reference, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What I want to do is focus on the last argument that he makes. Think about how exquisite a point this is. Jesus is telling us that when the priest in the temple worked on Sabbath, they were not guilty of breaking the Sabbath law. Yes, they were technically working on Sabbath. But the idea is that the atoning sacrifices in the temple that they were engaged in was more important than Sabbath keeping. Are you with me? That's part of the argument. Now, let's ask ourselves the question, did the blood of bulls and goats truly remove sin? Doesn't Hebrews 10.4 say it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to make atonement? So Jesus, who is what all of it is pointing to, shows up, and he's making a lesser to greater argument if the lesser priests in the temple could work on Sabbath and not be guilty. How much more can Jesus, who is the actual atonement to which it all pointed forward to, work on the Sabbath? Jesus is God, and he can work on the Sabbath. And by the way, he does right now. Do you know why everything is under control? And that we don't have one random molecule in the entire cosmos? Because Christ keeps it all. He not only created all things, but he sustains all things. Colossians chapter 1. So you know what? Jesus works on Saturday. And he is greater than the temple. 
Therefore, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And what that means forevermore, do not think that Sabbath rest, you're going to find it by taking it easy on Saturday. No, if you want Sabbath rest, according to Hebrews 4, you're going to come to faith in Jesus, and you're going to enter into an eternal rest. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and you and I, are therefore, are no longer under the old covenant. We certainly see that Jesus is the one who's brought about the new covenant. In fact, what I'm going to show you is how the New Testament writers understood the relationship between the Mosaic law the Mosaic Covenant, and the New Covenant. Now, I'm going to be borrowing from a scholar his categories. I'm going to cite him and give him credit. Some years ago, I read a book by a man's name was Brian Rosner. And I highly recommend his book. It's edited by D.A. Carson. It's called Paul in the Law. The three categories I'm going to give you, I think, can be applied not just to Paul, but all New Testament writers. Here are the three things that the New Testament writers did with the Old Testament law. Number one, it all begins with R. They repudiate the Mosaic law as a binding legal code that can save you. They repudiate it. Number two, they replace the Mosaic covenant with the new covenant. Number three, they reappropriate the Old Testament as scripture for wisdom, for prophecy, in the encouragement of new covenant saints. Repudiate, replace, reappropriate. Now, let me begin the case. This is very important. If you don't get this right, later on in your life, you'll have someone who will want to bring you back to the Mosaic law. And if you don't get this right, you'll be confused, and you might be tempted to do so. Now, turn your Bibles to Romans 3, 20 through 21. What I want to show you is I want to build the case that, indeed, the law of Moses has been repudiated as a binding legal code that can save. Turn your Bibles to Romans 3, verses 20 through 21. Romans 3, verse 20 through 21. Paul here is going to show that the Mosaic law is no longer binding. Notice what he says. Verse 20, Romans chapter 3, he says, Because by works of the law, that's the Mosaic law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So stop there. Notice through the law doesn't come righteousness, but the knowledge of our sin. That's the purpose of the law. To say, hey, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. Notice verse 21. But now apart from the law, the Mosaic law is a binding legal code. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is the scriptures. That's the idea. Yes, the Old Testament is still scripture, but it's not a binding legal code. It's been repudiated. Do not think that if you go to the law of Moses and you follow that, you can be saved. Now, let's look at the second move that the New Testament writers did. They replaced the Mosaic law with the law of Christ. We see that very succinctly in 1 Corinthians 9.21. Remember, this is the section where Jesus says, or excuse me, Paul says, that he became all things to all people so that some may be saved. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.21, to those who are without law, as without law. In other words, he became one who was without the law. But notice he qualifies. He says, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Brothers and sisters, you and I are not antinomians, as the Judaizers claimed in the New Testament era and still claim today. No, you and I belong to Jesus Christ, our new lawgiver, and we're under the terms of his covenant. And so this is why, The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8.13, he said, but when he, that's God, set a new covenant, that's from Jeremiah 31, chapter 31, he said, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Dear brothers and sisters, the Mosaic covenant is obsolete. You and I are under the law of Christ. It's been replaced. Third thing that they did is they reappropriated the Old Testament as scripture. So that, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9.9, Paul, remember, he deserved to be fed. That is, he deserved payment because of his duties that he had done for the congregation at Corinth. Well, he cites that passage from Deuteronomy, do not muzzle the ox who's treading out the grain. The idea is if you won't muzzle the ox because he's feeding you, how much more should you not muzzle 
the apostle who's feeding you the word of God. He's reappropriating the Old Testament as wisdom for the people of God. How do you know that Jesus Christ was going to come in the first place? The Old Testament. The Old Testament will forever be the scriptures for the people of God, although it's not a binding legal code. That's the key switch that we have to make. And so, dear ones, I want you to realize that in Christendom today, there are many in the Reformed tradition, especially those who follow Calvin. I'm not saying everyone who follows Calvin does this, but many do. They believe in something called the third use of the law. And the idea is that you and I begin by faith in Jesus Christ, but if we really want to be sanctified, we go to Moses who will beat us into submission. And so the Old Testament law is used for sanctification. I think that that's totally false. I think it's a form of Judaizing. Bob and I, some years ago, we taught on this, and somebody must have been enamored with that teaching and and liked it because they sent Bob and I a shirt. And on the front of the shirt, it seems blasphemous at first, but hold on. The front of the shirt says, I was not justified by Jesus. And you think, oh my gosh, I'm not wearing that. But on the back, it says, in order to be sanctified by Moses. You and I were not justified by Jesus in order to be sanctified by Moses. Are you with me? You and I are under the new covenant. There's a new sheriff in town, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ who didn't give us a temporal covenant, but an eternal one. And so this is why Paul, when he talks about the proper role of the law, and he's talking about the law of Moses, we learn this in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. Notice what he says. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers. Brothers and sisters, let's look at the blue here for just a moment. Notice he says the law of Moses is not for a righteous person. Let me ask you, who is the righteous person? Someone who works hard enough like the scribes and the Pharisees? Or someone who by faith belongs to Christ? Well, it's the latter. So the righteous person is the believer, and Paul is saying the law is not for them. Who is it for? The ungodly, sinners, the unholy, the profane. All of these things characterize the actions of the unregenerate. The law of Moses is for the unregenerate. Now, in this same text, I have to have you turn to this. Please turn your Bibles to the... I couldn't fit it all on here. I'm sorry. My PowerPoint's too big. But turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1, 10 through 11. I want you to see an exquisite point here. What is the ultimate standard of sound doctrine and teaching according to Paul in this very passage? Notice he continues. 1 Timothy, please turn your Bibles to 1, 10 through 11. I'll give you a little moment here. 1 Timothy 1, 10 through 11. And notice in verse 10, he continues with all of the immoral people and the unregenerate list. So verse 10, notice he continues. He says, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now stop there. Does everyone see the term sound teaching at the end of verse 10? Does everyone see that? Now, as you approach verse 11, what is sound teaching? He says in verse 11, according to, stop there, that preposition is kata. And it's a preposition of standard. So what is the standard of sound teaching that you and I are bound to? He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It's the new covenant. That's the gospel. You and I, brothers and sisters, are not under the old covenant or under the new. You and I were not saved by Jesus in order to be sanctified by Moses. No, you and I will remain with Jesus and his doctrine till the day that either you and I go to be with him or he breaks through the clouds to rapture us and to bring us home. Think of this example. Let me give you an analogy. It's from scripture. I want you to think of the power of the new covenant versus the old. The problem with the old covenant is you and I couldn't do the commands within it. The problem was us. Our sin nature hamstrung us. So think about the first giving of the law happened at Mount Sinai. Do you realize that in tradition, and I think there's validity to this, the very first Pentecost happened 
at the giving of the law. So if you go back to Exodus 20 and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, that was the first Pentecost. First Pentecost, you have the giving of the law. How did that go for Israel? Well, not so good. They built a golden calf. Why? Because they couldn't do the law. And in fact, in Exodus 32, 28, at the giving of the Mosaic Covenant, it says that 3,000 died. How many? 3,000 died. Fast forward to the New Covenant. Pentecost happens. The giving of the Spirit, and according to Acts 2.41, at the giving of the Spirit at that Pentecost, and the New Covenant, how many came to eternal life? 3,000. What the law killed, the Spirit brought life. Brothers and sisters, didn't God say again in Jeremiah 31.32, the New Covenant's going to be different. And brothers and sisters, it certainly is, because by His Spirit, He enables us to do that which is pleasing to God. Now, let's end on our final application point, and that is today in Matthew, we saw clearly from Jesus that unless our righteousness would surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we would not enter the kingdom of God. So we have two choices. Our first choice is to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, become more scrupulous like that of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, how did that work for them? And you know what? You and I are sinners just like they are. We're not going to fare any better. The other option is that we would belong to Jesus Christ by faith because he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament expectation. And brothers and sisters, it's my prayer that you would opt for the latter. I want you to see that, yes, there are texts in the Old Testament, or excuse me, in the New, that show us Jesus did, in fact, obey all the commands of the Old Testament. We find that in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Notice here Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, meaning under its authority. Now notice the purpose statement, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as son. Dear ones, this is a passage that implies Jesus born under the law, he really did perfectly obey it. Why? So that he could purchase us who didn't. There's the idea of substitution. Jesus did for us, what we couldn't do for ourselves. And by the way, this isn't the only text that teaches this. Paul says the same thing, roughly, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, He, that's the Father, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Stop there. Notice that he who knew no sin, it was critical that Jesus would be sinless, that he would completely obey God. Why? Because if he did not, he would have to suffer punishment for his own sin. He couldn't pay for ours. But he was tempted in all things as we are, as it says in Hebrews, yet without sin. He was sinless, completely obeyed. Notice he did that on our behalf. The preposition there, pair, means the idea of substitution. It's on our behalf he did this. Now, the purpose statement, so that what? We might become the righteousness of God in him. Dear ones, this is the core of the gospel, what I like to refer to as the great transaction. Namely, that we have to be given something that we don't have, Christ's righteousness, and we have to desperately get rid of something we can't have, namely our sin debt. And praise be to God, Jesus does both for us in his work. This Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And he existed as God and with God from all eternity. But at a point in time in history, this God humbled himself and he became a man, truly God, truly man, in one person. And he did so so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could, so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. But Jesus didn't simply obey and live the perfect life for us. He also went to a cross, and on that cross... He died a substitutionary atonement. Jesus the just on behalf of us the unjust in order that we might be brought to God, in order that we would have forgiveness of sins. The proof of this is seen by the fact that Jesus was raised on the third day. He was bodily raised on the third day, which proves all of his claims. When Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him, we can believe it. Why? He was raised from the dead. This Jesus also ascended into the heavens where he's seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom for his people and a resurrection 
but wrath and judgment upon his enemies. And it's this Jesus, the eternal lawgiver, who commands every single person. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Every person is to repent and believe the gospel. Repent has to do with turning, turning from idolatry, which is anything other than faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If you will turn to faith in Jesus today by the authority of Scripture, you can know that you have everlasting life, the forgiveness of sins, and the absolute promise of a glorious future and a glorious kingdom. All because Jesus and Jesus alone fulfilled the entirety of the Old Testament expectations. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that through your word you convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment by your spirit, and that we know that we can't be righteous any more than the scribes and the Pharisees could by their works. Lord, we do thank you that we can, by faith, belong to your Son, and that we can be those who fulfill the law, not by our own power or what we do, but because we belong to your Son who did it on our behalf. We thank you for these truths, Lord. We pray in the days and weeks ahead that you'd give us the ability to do that which is pleasing in your sight, that we'd be not just hearers of the word, but doers. You'd also give us ample opportunity and boldness to proclaim your gospel so that our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, our family members and coworkers who don't know you, that they also may be saved. We pray that you do this through us and for us, even for the sake of your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand, if you will, for the benediction. This is from Jude 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless all of you. Have a wonderful week.